be loved. As we continue worshiping this morning, we invite you to turn in your Bible or Bible apps to the words of the book of Esther, the fourth chapter beginning in the ninth verse. Let us receive the word of God. Haddock went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Haddock and gave him a message for Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter, to someone made that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Grace and peace be unto you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. I want to take a brief moment to thank Pastor Ginger and all at Foundry who have worked so hard to provide this series on living the faith at intersection and especially taking time and energy to recognize the 65th annual celebration of the full rights of clergy women in the United Methodist Church. I also want to thank all of you at Foundry for providing spiritual sustenance to me and our family during the time of pandemic and at other times when I've been able to worship with you and pray for you and your wonderful ministries. May God bless you in your journey. Let us pray. A gracious God, open now our minds and hearts to receive a fresh word from you this day. Amen. There are times when the words in a letter burn into our memories. Such a letter and such words came to me between the moving, between my first and second pastoral appointments. I had recently been ordained an elder in full connection in the Florida conference. And I suppose I reasoned at the time that it didn't matter anymore if I kept that letter, but it did matter because I can still quote parts of that letter today, 47 years removed from it, 
a letter that came to me from the chair of the Board of Ordained Ministry in 1974. Dear Charlene, you seem to be qualified for ministry, but because you're a woman, there might be issues in the future. If you think you have a call to ministry, you could try to exercise it in another annual conference. Wow. At the time I received the letter, it still did not sink in that I had been turned down royally and that the kind suggestion by the registrar of the board was to tell me to look elsewhere if I insisted on pursuing my calling. And like so many other women, I began to hear all those negative voices in my head. Was I really called? Was God telling me something differently? Did I have the capacity to be a pastor? Can I finish seminary? Why in the world should I? I'm a failure. And that endless loop continued in my head. But more importantly, I knew that I was going to need to figure out what was God saying to me in this moment. After crying all the way home on my flight from Central Florida to the Chicago airport, and then getting to our home in Evanston, where I was a student at Garrett Evangelical, I was pretty much paralyzed and not able initially to discern God's voice or even presence. My soul was wounded and my spirit was crushed. But right away, I began to hear other voices speak to me, voices from seminary students and faculty, from church friends, from my pastor at the time, from my husband, and especially other women on the path to ordination. These voices said, don't give up. <laughs> Try again, even if they said no to you. Come to my annual conference. We will take you. And most poignant of all from a respected professor, don't let the church rob you of your calling. Don't let the church rob you of your calling. Well, it's a very long story with a lot of chapters, but suffice it to say that in the next year, I applied again to my home conference and was accepted for deacon's orders and my first appointment within a month as an associate pastor, all because a path opened up to me through persistent prayer, advocacy, a visit on our seminary campus by a Florida leader, a plea from me for another chance, and a DS and senior pastor willing to give me a try and by offering me a place to serve. As it turned out, unknown to me at the time, I would be the first female pastor in the Florida conference to be appointed to a local church. Later, I would be the first female elder, the first female DS in Florida, and much, much, much later, the first female bishop in the southeastern jurisdiction. 
when a discernment team accompanied me for a year as I was being called to the Episcopacy, our theme for my candidacy was for such a time as this. The southeastern jurisdiction had yet to elect a female bishop after four quadrenniums of effort where we had gifted women that we had lifted up and worked for. In a book titled Women Bishops of the United Methodist Church, Bishop Sharon Rader and Professor Margaret Ann Crane interviewed all the living women bishops in 2019. In some or many ways, all the women bishops have carried the unique and heavy burden of being a first woman. First to serve in an appointment, first to serve on the cabinet, first to serve in birthing a baby in an appointment, first to lead on a conference staff, first to lead a delegation to general conference and to be elected as bishops. Bishop Judy Craig, who is now in the communion of saints said, when our dust is dust, they will remember us as those who did the first things. Bishop Susan Morrison stated, to be claimed for a time such as this, in this role that I was in, and the ability to touch lives is unbelievable. I am awestruck. Being first also meant being under constant scrutiny of what we said, how we looked, how we led, whether we could preach, how we presided, and on and on. The reality is that we were all under the stress of charting a new course as clergywomen while experiencing the teary, tyranny of an anti-woman mindset and gender bias that we lived with in the church and society. Even today, sadly, some women bishops continue to receive threats on their lives and need to be accompanied by security at major public events. Even today, after 65 years of clergy women receiving full ordination rights, the resistance to women's leadership in the church continues to take many forms. Was it any surprise that my discernment team looked to the story of Esther as empowerment for the journey ahead? Something about this book makes us laugh and cry and reach out to God all at the same time. Something about this book makes us wonder what God is truly up to. Oh, Esther, how we clergywomen have recalled your story and the memory of your being called by God for such a time as this. For we can see God's hand so clearly at work in your life, your actions, your wisdom, your servant leadership, your desire to bring good to your people. The book of Esther is intended to be read in its entirety in the temple or the sanctuary. It's such a powerful unveiling of God's plans unfolding among the unlikeliest of people and circumstances. Some have called it a drama, a burlesque, a comedy, a short story. It is probably all of those. 
Historian Deborah Lipstadt actually won a court victory over a Holocaust denier during her career. Soon after that court verdict, she went to Temple and the scroll of Esther was read at her local synagogue's celebration of Purim. She reports in the Jerusalem Post in June of 2000, I heard all of that in a new way, all of it, and it made me think. Who knows, if not for this very reason, I got the education I got. I got the upbringing I got. I got my job. Maybe we are all meant to do one something really significant. And some of us will do it on a public stage, and some of us will do it by helping a child. Sometimes nobody knows of it, nobody sees it, but we're all meant to do something. And maybe this is the something I was meant to do, indeed. We remember you, Esther, from becoming an orphan with no discernible future, to your uncle Mordecai bringing you into his family and treating you like his daughter. Your descendants were Jewish, descended from the tribe of Benjamin, living in the time of King Ahasuerus, who ruled from 486 to 465 BCE. We remember that Mordecai was a respected man, a civil servant in the royal court, and because he was in that court, he would hear gossip from the comings and goings of people making their way to see the king. He heard about a royal party in which the king indulged himself and his subjects in endless days of drinking and dining and carousing, all to display the king's massive wealth and power. When the king called upon his wife at the height of the party, his wife Vashti, to come in and be displayed as a trophy wife to all his guests, she absolutely refused. And so he who commanded such great wealth and a vast territory was not obeyed by his wife. So embarrassed, drunk, and raging in anger, he ordered the death of Vashti. Then he decreed that all the virgins of his empire were to be brought to the court, become his harem, so that the king could choose one of them as his new queen. Here enters Esther, a young, beautiful, and brilliant woman who has carried against her will into the court. She, like the other women, would be treated like royalty for a year. They would be groomed with long perfume baths and bubbles of soap and mud wraps, with facials and makeup and massages, surely with manners and posture training, with fancy meals, with brand new clothes, with skills and duties related to hostessing, and of course, to be ready to go into the king's bedchamber at his beck and call. What does Esther take with her when she is called to the king's chambers? Her conversations with the king always began with this, if it please the king. 
But she also took not only her beauty, but her knowledge, humility, cleverness, and wisdom. She is able to tell the king about an assassination attempt on his life and gives her uncle Mordecai credit for how she got that information. She is able to expose Haman, an arrogant and brutal supervisor over Mordecai at court. Haman has tricked the king into issuing a decree to kill all the Jews, destroy and annihilate them. Why? All because one Jew, Mordecai, refused to bow down to him when he was commanded to do so. Uncle Mordecai had instructed Esther to keep her Jewish identity a secret when she was taken into the court and the harem. He also told Esther how to get the king's favor and to have the killing decree removed and a new decree proclaimed. The extraordinary turn of events reveals that Esther is indeed able to save her people. She becomes their queen and rules with equity, dignity, and compassion. The whole book of Esther is still read at temple at the festival of Purim, a celebration where God's power of freeing the Jews is made possible through the woman, Esther. I dare to say that every clergywoman has perceived a call like Esther's, surely not as dramatic as hers, but certainly a clarity that God has called her and equipped her to serve God's people in the church and in the world. And it has only been through hard work and preparation, the mentoring and coaching of those who went before, the discernment of leaders in the church, and the abundant grace of God that each of us has stepped into such a calling, tried it on, and found our own courage and voices along the way. Whether we are representative of the first wave of clergywomen or daughters of clergywomen, representatives of racial ethnic groups or brought in by long and circuitous roots, we have been emboldened like Esther was. It is not about us. It is never about us as individuals or any distinctions or honors that may come our way. It is because we will be called to live for God and serve others. And that will be regardless of along the way who calls us what. In my case, it was pastorette, priestess, preacherette, lady preacher, or baby bishop. Please note all the diminutive language. And these are only the names I can tell you in public in church. It will not matter where clergywomen are sent to serve or who rejects us or denies us along the way or even threatens us with bodily harm, we will still be called by God. And like Esther, we will be given opportunities to lead and to use our spiritual authority for good to help save and to serve God's people. As a retired clergywoman who is still serving as a bishop, 
I'm reminded of the vision and hope of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a leader of the suffrage movement. I still carry within me a vision of God's justice and joy, bringing heaven to earth. In my small part of God's healing work, I can say along with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, that I will never forget that we are sowing winter wheat, which the coming spring will see sprout and other hands than ours will reap and enjoy. Thank you, Esther. Thank you to all clergy women, those who were first, those who came after, and those who will follow all of us. I never forget that we are sowing winter wheat, which the coming spring will see sprout, and other hands than ours will reap and enjoy. May it be so. Amen. Amen.